Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Liz Truss faced further attacks on her economic platform this week after a leaked recording showed that she thought Britons need to show more graft in the workplace. I want a high-wage, high-growth economy. The fact is we've had two decades of low growth in this country. I will not continue with business as usual. I will be bold in making the change we need to help people right across our country. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. I'm back from Devon, having buried myself away to delve into the fall of Boris Johnson, which you can read about later this year. Thank you very much to George Parker for stepping in. He's now off enjoying some fun in the sun. As you know, over these summer weeks, we're focusing on the Tory leadership race, the only story in the Westminster village. This week, we'll be taking you through the latest developments in the race to be the next UK Prime Minister, including two more hustings in Scotland and Northern Ireland, questions that stacked up about what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak would do to help the cost of living crisis, but also what the candidates would do to improve the fabric of the United Kingdom. To analyse, I'm delighted to be joined by our political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Sleshi and special guest, Paul Goodman, editor of the Conservative Home website, a former MP and friend of the podcast. Welcome, Paul and Jasmine. It's great to have you both back. Now, let's begin with the state of the race. We've had two further polls this week of Conservative Party members that suggested, as we've seen so far, Liz Truss is on course to win. YouGov put the Foreign Secretary on a whopping 32-point lead over Rishi Sunak, as does your site, Paul. Do you believe these results? The race is over, if the polls are right. Not just the Conservative Home Survey, it's not even just the YouGov poll. Last weekend, there was an opinion poll that gave this trust a 20-point lead. If all these are right, it's gone. The remaining time essentially is wasted. But if we're right, it's all done and dusted. How could the polls be wrong? Well, you know, sometimes polls do go wrong. The Sunak campaign say, well, all these polls, they're underestimating where the members are. A lot of them are in well-off home counties-type constituencies where there'd be more support for Sunak. To that, I'd say maybe. But, you know, I think if you look at Conservative leadership elections, what you tend to find is about a third of the party members lean left of party centre, about two-thirds lean right of party centre. That's what we're finding in these polls. So Sunak really has an Everest to climb if the journey's not already over. And it's very much an echo of the 2019 contest in that sense, where Boris Johnson was the more right-leaning candidate. He got 66%, and Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, got 33%, and that would echo that exactly. The other point the student can make, Paul, is they say that uh, these polls aren't weighted for turnout in southern England, and obviously two-thirds of the Tory party grassroots members are based in the prosperous home counties. What's your response to that? They may be right about that, but... They may not be right to assume that the bulk of those members are blue-wall, remain-leaning, 
softly focused types of people. Uh, in fact, a Tory member in Whitney may have a certain amount in common with a Tory member in Walsall. If two-thirds of the party lean right of party centre and a third of it leads left of party centre, that's going to find its way through to the ballot no matter where the members are. Well, Rishi Sunak was asked at one of the hustings this week if it really was all over and whether he was too far behind to win. No, because I believe I have the right plan to help everyone in the United Kingdom, support them with the cost of living, particularly the most vulnerable groups in society, like those on the lowest incomes and pensioners, but with some help for everyone. Jasmine, if Paul is right, and these polls do appear to be accurate, and given how big these leads are, even if they were way out, Liz Truss would still win. Why is Rishi Sunak still in the race? Because I think James Cleverley, the education secretary, urged him to essentially drop out and end this agony for all of us. I mean, I do think James Cleverley was right to, to point out the long nature of some of these contests. It does feel a bit like Groundhog Day at this point, with some of the hustings and we're hearing the same talking points um, being wheeled out. But, I mean, I can completely understand why Rishi hasn't pulled out. His argument is that he's got a alternative case to put forward. He's got backing of some MPs still. So I can completely understand why he would want to see this through to the end. But, you know, we all know how this is going to end. And this week, we're seeing that increasingly MPs are seeing which way the wind is blowing. And we had um, 11 Tory whips who normally are expected to stay neutral. They came out in favour of list trust. So we're seeing increasingly MPs that were either neutral or team Rishi Sunak slowly sort of turning to team Liz. Rishi really has struggled throughout contests. And I think part of the problem has been that He's such a well-known figure and he was such a prominent figure throughout the pandemic. We got used to seeing him on the podium and those Downing Street conferences. I think people had a very fixed image of him and people knew what they were getting. So he's had very little time to actually convince people who weren't too sure about how he handled Partygate, how he handled his resignation. He had very little time to, to win people over in a way that trust has really risen through the ranks. And she has in many ways proved to be all things to all people. She appeals to those Brexiteers, as she can say that she's a born-again Brexiteer. She appeals to those who you know, prefer low tax. She can she ticks many boxes for Tory membership and Tory MPs. So it does feel like it, it would be trust. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Rishi Sunak just kept on plugging away to the very end. Well, you and I, Jasmine, have both watched many of these hustings and have attended some of them. And one of the consistent themes is this question about Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson and how he acted in those final days when he resigned as Chancellor on the Tuesday before the Prime Minister went on the Thursday. And this sense of betrayal. And it is striking that at every hosting this comes up and in the polling this week that we saw in Conservative Home, it did remind us of just how popular Boris Johnson is amongst Tory party members, that if he was in this contest, he would beat Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak by a country mile. But the fact that Rishi Sunak is seen as the anti-Johnson candidate, that is clearly going into that mood at the moment. I would definitely agree. And I think it's important to note that it was largely the MPs um, who got Johnson out. It wasn't necessarily the members. And one thing that has struck me, as you said, not just watching the hustings, but also going out into some of these quote-unquote Tory heartland constituencies, is that actually Johnson was almost like the Goldilocks candidate. He managed to appeal to Conservatives in the Red Wall, in the Blue Wall. He managed to appeal to a broad spectrum of people across the party. And there is a feeling that, you know, they're looking at these two candidates and thinking, actually... You know, maybe we shouldn't have got rid of Johnson. Maybe, you know, maybe what we had wasn't as bad as we thought. And so, and I, I do think Rishi is definitely bearing the brunt of 
that frustration from those members who wanted Johnson to stay. And it's been a continual thing that's come up again and again and again. He's defended himself and he said, you know, I had to resign because we weren't aligned economically. Other people resigned. But it's just not really washing with members. And the fact that he keeps getting this question suggests that it isn't really an issue that's going to go away. Before Boris Johnson resigned, Colin Homey in our regular surveys asked the party members whether he should. And like you, Gov, we found it pretty evenly split. It was about 50, 40, one way or the other. When he'd actually just gone, his support fell down to about 30%. You were quoting a poll a moment ago, so not one of ours, but elsewhere, which showed that his support's back up. So what's happened? I think it's very simple. I think absence makes the heart grow fonder. And every day that Boris Johnson is not in the papers for another party or another mess up with his backbenchers or um, someone else resigning, party members look at the two candidates, and I agree completely with Jasmine here, and they think, are these people really big enough to step into the shoes of Boris Johnson? So while the party members don't exactly follow the line of you know, Lord Crudders, one of Boris Johnson's creations in the House of Lords, who wants Boris Johnson on the ballot paper, there is already a cult of St. Boris. And I can bet you, you know, within a few months, the Daily Telegraph and other conservative newspapers, maybe even conservative home, will be full to the brim with articles lamenting how we lost this genius. And isn't it a tragedy for the party? and for the country. I think the political caravan will move on quite quickly, though, because obviously Boris Johnson is still facing the Privileges Committee investigation, and there's been some very visceral attacks on that committee, which normally is seen as sort of above-party politics within Parliament, which suggests Boris Johnson's inner circle are worried about privilege. And of course, if that goes the wrong way, Paul, that could see him being out of Parliament and potentially a by-election. So people might lament him, but the idea of any kind of comeback seems quite implausible. Boris Johnson has a way of making the implausible plausible and the plausible implausible. And while the caravan will certainly move on, this great blonde figure hulking alongside it, shouting and making a lot of noise. And you know, until or unless he's safely out of Parliament, which would be a massive controversy in itself, if he's basically forced out by an inquiry and a recall ballot, until that's actually happened the volume's really not going to go as low as it will do in that eventuality. Now, let's move on to one of the policy topics that's dominated the leadership contest this week, and that is the union. The hustings among Tory party members took place in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and many of the questions were about what either of the candidates would do to repair the fabric of the United Kingdom. I think it's fair to say over Boris Johnson's leadership, the concept of Britishness has not weathered particularly well, and Boris Johnson himself has been a fairly unpopular figure in Northern Ireland for, of course, that controversial issue with the protocol as part of his Brexit withdrawal agreement, and in Scotland uh, with his very spats with Nicola Sturgeon. Now, Jasmine, you have watched some of these hustings. How did either of the candidates go down well? Is there clearly a pro-union candidate in Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak? So it's interesting. I'd actually say that this week's hustings in Northern Ireland and Scotland were some of the most important because actually these are areas where historically the Tory party hasn't had that much support as of late. Um, and as you said, there was a feeling among both regions that actually under Johnson's premiership, they've been neglected, their interests haven't really been adhered to. And obviously with Nicola Sturgeon, we're now seeing growing calls for a second referendum. So it was quite interesting in that if we quickly turn to the Scotland hustings, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss were very firm. They wouldn't really be in favour of a second Scottish independence referendum. Liz Truss in particular 
you know, we know that she's been, you know, issued some some tough fighting words against Nicola Sturgeon. And she's really argued that actually the way to unify um, the country and maintain the union is to simply deliver policies that can be felt in all parts of the UK. Um, so she, yeah, she issued quite tough pledges. She pledged to renew Trident and to increase some of the defence contracts issued to Scottish companies. Um, and then Rishi Sunak also sort of said something quite similar, put forward his his case for the union. I do think there is a sense that actually the figure of Johnson was so controversial that actually anyone but Johnson, when it comes to Scotland in particular, will boost the Tories' popularity in the region. I think turning to Northern Ireland, I think that is a slightly different issue. And that obviously Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary has been deeply involved in issues relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I would say watching it, it didn't seem as though she had a particularly hostile audience. I'd say in both hustings, it came across as though she was the favoured candidate among Tories in the room. But, you know, I do think both candidates will have an uphill struggle when it comes to putting forward their case to voters and Tory members in, in those particular regions. Well, in the Perth hustings, Rishi Sunak was asked about that comment Liz Truss made in a previous hustings where she said the best thing she'd like to do about Nicola Sturgeon is simply to ignore her. This was his response. I don't want to ignore Nicola Sturgeon. I want to take her on and beat her. And I think we can make a very strong case for what the UK government does to help people in Scotland. And as Chancellor, I started that to directly support Scottish communities and local areas. I would do more of that as Prime Minister. Paul. Rishi Sunak's approach sounds very like Boris Johnson's approach. In fact, that sentiment there was expressed time and time again by Michael Gove, who is the minister with responsibility for the union, talking about making the UK government deliver for Scotland. Liz Truss is wanting to take a bit of a different approach. There was a column by Katie Balls in the iPaper where she said that we can expect some muscular unionism from Liz Truss, where she won't be using the word independence, she'll be using the word succession. And that goes down very badly with the SNP. Is that going to work for her if she becomes Prime Minister, as we expect? Or will she have to tone it down when she gets into office? It's very interesting to hear Jasmine talking about the reception they both got in Scotland and Northern Ireland and conveying the sense that um, Liz Truss was going down better in both areas. I would expect a bit of that in Northern Ireland because Liz Truss will be more across the protocol on which the Treasury is meant to have been rather compromising. But on Truss and Scotland, I think there's a dimension here which is very interesting to me, which is Truss will be thinking largely of Conservative activists who have the vote in England, because that's where most of them are. I thought her original comment about wanting to ignore Sturgeon, treating her as an attention seeker, almost trying to pretend that she isn't there, I thought that was very cunningly pitched for an English Tory audience, because the way the English Tories think about Scotland is they don't really want to think about the problem at all, until or unless there's a crisis, with this sort of huge panic, the mainstream parties set their operations into motion there. Characters like Gordon Brown turn up and make vows. There are lots of big initiatives. But then the problem appears to go away for a bit. And everyone goes, phew, thank goodness, let's go and think about something else. So I thought from the point of view of an English Tory audience, Truss's original ploy was quite cleverly pitched. But of course, this echoes something across the whole contest, which what goes down well amongst an English Tory audience will not go down with A, necessarily the general public, but also B, voters within Scotland. And I think if Liz Truss does become Prime Minister, as we all agree is most likely, that approach is going to collide with reality. 
I don't really think we know what she's going to do. I admit I've got a somewhat jaundiced view of all these campaign pledges. I remember from the last one, Boris Johnson promised to cut the top rate of tax. Whatever happened to that? Answer, nothing very much. And I think problem with being immersed in them is, of course, you pay a lot of attention to the detail. But almost as soon as they're over, the candidate, whoever he or she may be, kind of switches to the realities of government. And that will never be more true than it will be on September the 5th, where the new Prime Minister, presumably Liz Truss, has got to come in and face strikes, drought, an energy crisis, war in the Ukraine, soaring prices. I, I think at that point, Scotland will probably be handed over to whatever figure in the policy unit or in the parliamentary party takes the lead. And I doubt Liz Trust will be thinking about it very much unless she has to. Well, let's move on to our third and final policy area, which is the one that's dominated this whole contest and this week's about, and that is the economy that we've seen inflation figures. It's steadily creeping upwards, and it looks like it is going to hit 13% at some point in the coming months. And in those hustings, Jasmine, the candidates were asked again, what are you going to do about this cost of living crisis? And nobody's saying anything new. Rishi Sunak is sticking to his line, saying, of course, we'll offer more help. We'll repeat the kind of packages that we've done earlier in the year. Liz Truss has rolled back her comment she made to the FT a couple of weeks ago about no handouts and saying I'll do whatever it takes but my reliance is going to be on taxes and that is the primary weapon here and it feels like they're in a holding pattern until we can just get to the end of this contest and then we're going to hear what they actually think about what they're going to do. It's actually interesting that this week it really feels like the focus of the leadership contest has been on cost of living energy bills because during the first couple of weeks, it really felt as though the contest was quite detached from reality. And we had the candidates talking about their philosophical ideals and what the Conservative Party stand for and, and, and tax, whereas this feels very much more grounded in some of the issues that the next Prime Minister is going to have to face come September. And you're right in that actually neither of them are really saying anything massively new. And I think it's pretty striking that actually this week we've had finally an intervention from Labour. They put forward this £29 billion plan, which they say is fully costed. And as part of that, they're calling for the energy price cap to be frozen until um, next spring. So they put forward this idea. I think the Liberal Democrats have also said something similar. I think there are some energy companies and uh, that are also backing it and charities are, are calling for more action. Meanwhile, the response from either candidate hasn't really been, they haven't really engaged with it. They've said that they're not buying into Labour's plan, but they haven't come up with a firm alternative other than, as you said, Liz Truss's suggestion for tax cuts and Rishi Sunak's cut on VAT for domestic fuel bills. I think it will genuinely be a case of whoever wins, and we think it will be Truss, will have to go in, look at the finances, and then reality will hit. And all the things, as Paul was saying, all the things that you say you would do and you wouldn't do, it changes when you're faced with the reality of government and when you're faced with your MPs who are getting letters from their constituents about how they're worried about their businesses closing down because they can't afford energy bills. What did you make of Labour's package that was announced this week, Paul? Because I thought it was very interesting. Essentially, it didn't go the full Gordon Brown idea of nationalising all the energy companies, but it did adopt this idea of freezing the price cap of where it is for six months, which would cost a terrific sum. I think it's about sort of £29 billion. 
and would then also cost that again if it was extended for another six months. But there's some polling out that shows, unsurprisingly, it is terrifically popular with people at the moment, including many Conservative voters. And it does strike me we could actually be in a similar situation as we were with the windfall tax that the Tories say, nope, we're absolutely not, we're never going to do this. Then eventually, after months, they cave and do what was obviously they were going to do all along. Do you think that could happen with this? Or do you think Prime Minister Trussell Sunak will come up with something different? The week before last, I thought, was the week when the campaigns got mugged by reality. When in your interview with Liz Truss, you really put her on the spot about what she would do about the cost of living. So this week, Labour came in, and essentially, to my simple way of thinking, we have three positions. One is Rishi Sunak putting forward a very orthodox Tory Treasury view. He's going to try and do the same sort of thing he did during the pandemic, and he would basically help the poor. Starmer, on the other hand, pretty well educated, he wants to help everyone. So this paradoxical position of the Labour Party having a position that, as it were, in inverted commas, is more pro-rich than Sunak. Now, the interesting figure, of course, is trust, because she's the Tory who's more likely to win. And her package at the moment is a bit uneasy, and you can see why she doesn't want to be drawn by it, because with you, she was stressing tax cuts, which by necessity of happening, tax cuts uh, help people who pay it, who on the whole tend to be better off. Were she to follow the Sunak route, as she may be forced to do, there would be some help through the benefit system. The interesting thing for this trust would be, what about the people in the middle? What about the... Um, natural Tory voters. Natural Tory voters, the you know, C2s or the squeeze middle or hardworking people, all those groups of people, what is Liz going to do about them? Interesting medium-term question. If you ask people, do you want someone to bail you out through a tax on somebody else? they'll all answer yes, hence the popularity of the Labour windfall tax procedure. And this does take me back to the 80s, where I remember all the Thatcher privatisation proposals, if you polled them, were always very unpopular. When people actually had to vote, they started thinking more seriously about the outcome for their families and the country, and they'd really look at all these tax proposals. And in the long term, they were not ultimately prepared to pay the tax burden that Labour in those days was advancing. So I think it's quite likely that the Tories will steal a windfall tax and stop Labour having the advantage of it. It's a classic thing that governments do to oppositions. They, they steal their policy. But there is an upper ceiling to how much you can take in tax. Uh, Sunak said that, interestingly, after the last spring statement, and Trust clearly recognises that as well. And Jasmine, finally, the last thing we heard from Liz Truss this week actually came from a couple of years ago. It was a leaked recording to the Guardian newspaper where she was said making these comments about British workers. That's my reflection on the election and what's come before it. And the referendum is like, we say it's all Europe that's causing all these problems. It's all migrants that yeah. causing these problems. And actually, what needs to happen is, you know, they're more graft. <laughs> And it's not a popular message. Well, not a popular message indeed, Jasmine, that this trust there when she was Chief Secretary of the Treasury saying that we need more graft to solve the country's economic issues. It's a story that in maybe normal political times would have got a lot more pickup and a lot more outrage. But curiously, it doesn't really seem to have got that much traction. I think partly because Liz Truss has set herself economically in such a clear place from the government and Rishi Sunak embracing a kind of neo-Thatcherite approach that saying that, that people need to basically work hard, people go, oh, well, of course, that's what she thinks. 
It did remind me of when billionaire Kim Kardashian got that backlash when she said that all people need to do to be successful is just go out and work, as if it's just that simple. <laughs> it was sort of unsurprising when I saw this emerge, because with a contest that's as long as this, there are always going to be skeletons that get pulled out of the closet. And so naturally, the comments don't look great. But as you said, there hasn't really been that much outrage about it. I don't think this will be the thing that derails her leadership campaign, if there is anything that derails it. I think she is an individual who people feel like they know what they're getting. They know what she stands for. You can imagine her saying it. We've heard her say it. No, I, I think it's just got to the point in the campaign where, you know, people are taking the rough with the smooth. MPs, members are backing trusts and something like this won't really phase them. And finally, Paul, I just want to get your view on the whole trust economic platform because you wrote an opinion piece in The Telegraph last week explaining while you were personally supporting Rishi Sunak and that was because of Liz Truss's economic um, platform where essentially you were saying that uh, what Liz Truss is putting forward is not really based in the kind of sound economics of the Thatcherite period. But if you take her view, which was captured in that clip, combined with a story we had in the FT this week about Liz Truss wanting to rip up the three regulators of the City of London, she's still on a very radical platform. How do you think that's going to connect with reality? And have you changed your mind at all about how you feel about both candidates since you wrote that article grudgingly endorsing uh, Mr Sunak? I think what I said in the Daily Telegraph piece, but also in Conservative Home, was that from my point of view, the two candidates actually cancelled each other out. And that if you weren't really quite sure what to do, maybe the best thing would be to go with the MPs who had voted in greater numbers for Sunak than Liz Truss. I note in passing this week a huge push by the Truss campaign to get more MPs signed up than Rishi Sunak. You know, perhaps they were wanting to make a point to anyone who advanced the argument that I was making. But on the economics, in the medium term, it seems to me that Liz Truss is right, that we can't carry on indefinitely with this economy of zero interest rates, not that we have them any longer, and quantitative easing and no growth and zombie companies and all the stuff we've had since 2010. In the medium term, I think she's right. In the short term, I think Rishi Sunak is right. Just put the inflation arguments aside for a moment. If you cut some taxes, if you're a bit loose with your spending, if at the same time you start changing the mandate of the bank, something that's arguably better done when everything's peaceful and quiet, rather than get the markets worrying about politicians trying to bring inflation into the system. If you add on top of that, going back to a regulatory structure for financial services that's more like Gordon Brown's, I can begin to imagine how this might spook the markets somewhat. And so, you know, this is why I, I suspect in, in government she's going to pursue a rather more modest platform. I, I go back to where I started. I thought there was not actually that much between the two candidates. And that the difficulty that some Conservative members had to wrestle with was that in the medium term, Trust was right. But then in the short term, it seemed to me that Sunak had got a very strong case. Well, we've only got a couple of weeks now to see what Prime Minister Trust will look like and whether she does, as you say, Paul, and governs in a more moderate way or whether she keeps all those pledges and if she does, how that goes down with the country and the market and the world, really. But for now, Jasmine and Paul, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you like listening to us, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released and since it's the summer and warm and you're feeling cheerful you should leave us a positive review and a nice rating 
Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sixworth. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy the weekend. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.